Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. We're so glad that you've joined us today. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. If you know a little bit about Christianity, or maybe you know a lot about Christianity, you know that Christianity seems to have a lot to do with salvation. Right? Especially if you live in America like I do, it's hard to miss Jesus saves banners, advertisements, bumper stickers, and things of that nature. Everybody kind of knows that Jesus saves, but do people in general, and Americans perhaps in particular, have any frame of reference in which they might understand what it means for Jesus to save? After all, a lot of people in America especially associate saving with saving money and going shopping and saving money there. Does it mean Jesus goes to Walmart to save or something like that? Uh, may have entered the minds of some people. And maybe you've heard this one before. Jesus and Satan were having an ongoing argument about who was a better worker on the computer. They had been going at it for days, and God was just tired of hearing all of the arguing. And finally fed up, God said, That's it, I've had enough. I'm going to set up a test that will run for two hours, and from those results, I will judge who does the better job. So Satan and Jesus sat down at the keyboards and typed away. They emailed, they sent attachments, they downloaded, they worked on spreadsheets, they wrote reports, they created labels and cards, they made charts and graphs, they did genealogy reports, they did all kinds of jobs. And Jesus worked with great efficiency, and Satan was very fast. Ten minutes, though, before their time was up, lightning suddenly flashed across the sky. Thunder rolled, rain poured, and of course, the power went out. Satan stared at his blank screen and screamed every curse word known in the underworld. And Jesus just sighed. The electricity finally came back on, and each of them restarted their computers. Satan started searching frantically, screaming, It's all gone! I lost everything when the power went out! But Jesus just quietly started printing out all his files from the past two hours of work. Satan observed this and became quite mad. Wait a second! That's not fair! He cheated! How come he has all of his work and I don't have any of mine? And God just shrugged and said, Jesus saves. Ha! Ha ha! Yes, funny. Jesus saves his work. That's the kind of things people associate, though, saving with. That you save your work on your computer, you save money at grocery stores or at stores, or by not going to grocery stores or stores. And so, in that kind of environment, what does it mean that somebody would need to be saved by Jesus? What is salvation? Why do people need to be saved? And how does Jesus go about saving? When we go back to the dictionary, salvation is a word that means preservation from or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. And so we can see why to save is used the way it is. It's a deliverance from loss, that we gain something by saving. Uh, but it's also consistent with source terms in Hebrew and Greek, and we can hopefully see the wider idea involved. Uh, not deliverance from loss of money as much, but deliverance and preservation from harm or ruin. The Hebrew uh, word yasha means to save, to be saved, or to be delivered in Brown Driver Briggs. We can see this in, for instance, Exodus 14 and verse 13. When Moses tells the people of Israel to fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation, the yasha of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the form actually there is Yeshua, salvation there. And Yeshua will become the name Yehoshua, Joshua, also Jesus. And it means that Yahweh saves, Matthew 1 and 21, as we will see. And that in, in Matthew 1, 21, the Greek equivalent is sozo, to save, keep safe and sound, or to rescue from danger or destruction, according to Thera's lexicon. 
And we have the idea of, as we said, of preservation of loss. And that's an idea that is existing in Christianity. But when we talk about salvation in Christianity, we're really talking about the idea of deliverance or rescue. To save life, to rescue and deliver people. And in the covenant between God and Israel, God's salvation for the people, their deliverance or rescue, was understood in very physical and concrete terms. After all, there in Exodus 14.3, Yahweh quite literally delivered his people. The sea uh, uh, was parted, they walked through as if on dry land, and the sea would then cover their enemies in the rest of chapter 14. And so they were physically delivered, taken out of a dangerous place, and they saw the destruction of their enemies, which meant they were rescued from danger very concretely. Uh, we can see this many other places. First Samuel 14.45, Saul will magnify the salvation Yahweh provided his people when they defeated the Philistines because of Jonathan's bravery. We see that in other places as well. Uh, the salvation of Yahweh is manifest in Psalm 14.7 when his people are brought back from exile. It's very easy if people want to spiritualize the Old Covenant, uh, looking at it in New Covenant terms. But we need to resist that because Israel uh, was in a very physical covenant where the blessings were physical, the cursings were physical, and therefore deliverance was physical. Israel was saved by Yahweh when Yahweh defeated their enemies and when he brought them out of Egypt and then out of Babylonian exile. It also explains why when Jesus came around talking about uh, that God was going to save them, they were expecting him to save them from Rome, save them from their physical enemies yet again, and why they were disappointed when it didn't happen the way they were expecting. But the scriptures are very clear and consistent about Jesus of Nazareth. And this begins from the beginning of the gospel. Uh, from the name that Gabriel encourages Joseph and Mary to name the child uh, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Uh, that they should call his name Jesus because he would save the people from their sins. And so the idea that Jesus' is Savior is inherent in his name, Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. In Romans 8 and verse 24, Christians are saved in the hope that in Christ they would receive the adoption as sons, the resurrection of the body. In Romans 8, 18 through 23. And all this is testifying to us, uh, along with Colossians 2.15, that Christ has overcome the powers and principalities, that Jesus came to save the people from the forces of evil, sin, and death. And so, in Scripture, God works to rescue and deliver his people. And in Christ, God rescues people from sin, death, and the forces of evil. So, when we talk about salvation in Christianity, that's what we're talking about. Rescue and deliverance. And this may cause a lot of people to bristle. Well, what do you mean, I need to be saved, rescued, or delivered? Because by virtue of necessity, when we talk about salvation, rescue, deliverance, it requires somebody else to provide assistance. Especially in America, we've got this idea of self-sufficiency, that we've built our, picked ourselves up by our bootstraps, and that we've built whatever we have with our own hands. And therefore, the idea that we would need somebody else's assistance to, to be preserved, uh, just kind of doesn't sit right. It rubs us the wrong way. And salvation also demands a bit of humility and a recognition of weakness. Because if we need to be rescued, it means that we don't have the strength in ourselves to uh, get ourselves out of whatever situation we happen to find ourselves in. And it's very hard for a lot of us, especially in America, to see ourselves as the weak. We tend to only want to see ourselves as the strong. 
And that's why before we can continue on looking at salvation, we need to understand why it would be that we would need uh, salvation. We need to do some self-understanding before we can understand why salvation is so important. Because I get the impression, at least, and, and maybe you can think this is crazy or not, but Americans tend to see themselves as generally good people who have a few flaws. And if you ask them, well, how do you know that they're good? Well, they're going to talk to maybe some good things that they do, some altruistic behaviors, maybe some decent ideas, but you're going to hear a lot of things they don't do. And and, and that their righteousness is established because they aren't cheating or they aren't killing and they aren't doing this, aren't doing that. And often Americans think that in the end, you know, they know they've got done some bad things and they've got some bad problems in life. But, you know, when the... It's all said and done, the good outweighs the bad, right? And that should be enough to provide whatever deliverance would be necessary. Now, let's be honest. It's not like this came out of uh, nowhere. Uh, You look at the Enlightenment rationalism uh, that has been developed over the past 250-odd years, the elevation of the standing of man, um, you can certainly see why we've come to that position. You can say that for the first 1,800 years of the preaching of the gospel, people did not need convincing that they were condemned. Instead, they needed to be convinced that they could be saved, that in fact God would rescue them out of their condition. But ever since that enlightenment, people are very confident that they can be saved. Instead, they need convincing that they actually stand condemned and therefore would need saving. And that's why we need to begin with Jesus' name and mission, that Yahweh saves in Jesus, that Jesus came to save people from their sins. We need to understand what sin is and why we would need to be saved from it. And sin has different dimensions that we need to understand. There's sin is transgression. And transgression, literally, is crossing a line. And that means we think, feel, or do something that is contrary to what God has decreed. Uh, and so sin is lawlessness in that sense, in 1 John 3 and verse 4. But it's not merely a crossing of a line. We can imagine a lot of circumstances in which a line may be crossed unintentionally. Uh, we could think of situations where a line is crossed because of a desire to do, uh, perhaps there was another thing that needed to be done, or we, we could rationalize that a lot of different ways. Uh, line crossing happens for all kinds of reasons, but sin also has this idea of rebellion. It's a spirit of disobedience in which we're not just innocently making a mistake or two, but we're very deliberately going against what God has said is right and good. And this is exactly what we would expect based upon the condemnation of sin in Romans 3, 9-18. through The word sin itself comes from the Greek hamartia, and hamartia means literally to miss the mark. And, and that suggests not merely that we're just thinking, feeling, or acting in in specific ways that are contrary to God's purposes, although that's certainly included, but it goes beyond that, also demonstrating that it's not just that we have done bad things, but we're also not always doing the good. We don't always live up to the standard uh, to which we've been committed. The idea that we continually fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23, and the one who knows the right thing to do but doesn't do it, to him it is sin in James 4.17. And so, uh, that's what sin is. And we have seen in Scripture uh, what happens when you sin. If you sin, you become a slave to sin, says Jesus in John 8.34. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 6.16. And in fact, it's sin that's the reason that there's pain, misery, and suffering and death. In Romans 5 and 8, uh, Paul picks up the theme of the creation account in Genesis uh, 2 and 3, that in fact sin entered the world, death entered the world through sin, and because of that there's corruption in the world, and it's all kinds of evils have come because of sin. 
And it's not like we sin and then all of a sudden we just kind of stay right on that other side of the line. As Romans 1, 18-32 demonstrates, there's this progression, uh, or maybe you could say regression, because of sin leading to greater and greater depravity. And ultimately, sin is the reason for physical death and spiritual separation from God. That, if not countered or atoned for, would lead to condemnation in hell. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9 through 9, uh, talks about condemnation that will come to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is the great conclusion of Paul in Romans 3.23. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we can't say, well, we've, we are the ones who have not sinned. No, we are all sinners, and because of that, we're all liable to condemnation. Conscious adults have participated in sin and stand to reap its consequences. Now, as we said, people will admit that they have problems, but they think that their good will outweigh the bad. And they think that uh, they can solve their sin people, their sin problems, excuse me, on their own. Because humans like to solve problems, right? If you're told about a problem, you think, hey, how do we solve this? If we're told that we can't fix a problem, we're just going to be more determined to figure out a way around it so we can actually solve that problem. And prove real hard that, no, your, your lack of confidence in us is wrong. But... In Scripture, God has made it known that our sin problem is, in fact, one that we cannot fix on our own. That idea that our good deeds could outweigh the bad, that would be perfect if we were Egyptians. And we believed in Egyptian mythology, and had copies of the Book of the Dead, and our heart would prove to be lighter uh, than Mott, the feather of truth, lest we get eaten by the crocodile. But that is not what we see in the pages of Scripture. Instead, in the pages of Scripture, we have the testimony of James, the Lord's brother, who says, beginning in chapter 2 and verse uh, 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We can understand this idea if we look at a courtroom scene. So imagine a courtroom scene. Let's say you're on trial for stealing. We're going to put you on the dock here today, dear listener. And I'm your defense lawyer, and my closing argument is this. Well, yes, he stole, or she stole. Let me tell you about this person. Otherwise, they've been a great person. They've helped a lot of people in need. They don't commit murder. They haven't committed adultery, so on and so forth. Uh, what would you think of my defense of you? You'd be very mad at me because I just declared that you were guilty of the thing for which you were on trial. And what's the jury going to come back with? They're going to come back with a sentence of guilt. Now, maybe in the... Afterward, when we go through figuring out the sentencing uh, procedure, maybe the testimony of how great a person you are would help you get a reduced sentence. But it doesn't change the fact that you are, in fact, a transgressor. You are guilty of the law of breaking the law by stealing. It doesn't matter uh, if you have not broken a thousand other laws. It doesn't matter how many times you've been a great person otherwise. According to the dictates of the law, you are guilty. And that's what James is getting at. If we have committed sin, we are guilty 
as transgressors. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3.20 that by works of the law, no man shall be justified before God. Because if we say, hey God, you know, I've done everything you said in the law, therefore I deserve salvation. All God has to do is point to one time we broke the law, and he said, nope, you've transgressed the law. According to the law, you stand condemned as a transgressor. And thus, if we die in our sins, God is just to condemn us, that we've begun to pay the penalty for what we have done. Because what's the penalty for committing sin? It is death in Romans 6.23. We're consigned to further judgment. Our good deeds cannot outweigh our bad deeds, because by having bad deeds, it means we have transgressed against the law and are judged by the law as transgressors worthy of condemnation. And so Jews and Greeks, men and women, even Americans, find themselves in need of rescue and deliverance because we have sinned and we cannot overcome sin by our own unaided efforts. And that is why Yeshua, Yahweh says, Jesus had to come to save the people from their sins. And the New Testament is very clear about Jesus and how he accomplished his, this deliverance and rescue. He died on the cross and he was raised on the third day. In Romans 4.25 and 5.6-11. At other times we've discussed Jesus' death and resurrection in great detail. But for our purposes it's important to understand the mechanism. How can it be that Jesus' death and resurrection could provide rescue and deliverance from sin? The New Testament provides a few motifs and three metaphors to describe how Jesus rescued and delivered people from sin and death. Uh, the motifs are specifically two, and the first one is a transactional. When we say transactional, it's kind of a, a bigger way of looking at two metaphors. Um, the idea of Jesus as a sacrifice that provides propitiation for sin, or Jesus as a ransom, payment uh, as redemption for sin. Uh, sin. The other motif is more militaristic, that Jesus defeats the forces of sin and death on the cross and the resurrection. And let's look at these in some more detail. We'll look at Jesus as a sacrifice. Because the big question in many people's mind is, okay, okay, okay. Uh, we've sinned, we need to do something about that. How can God causing his son to suffer awfully mean that we somehow get forgiven? That just seems weird and odd to our our modern minds. It just seems completely ridiculous. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Uh, because that's just we're just out of this framework that, that we've been given in Scripture. And we need to go back to what was going on under the law to understand it. In the days of Israel, God made himself known as a God of love and justice in Psalm 33.5. As a God of justice, wrongs need to be punished. Right needs to be commended. But as a God of love, a means needs to be provided to atone or cover for the wrongs done by an Israelite who proves contrite. And so, uh, in the covenant between God and Israel, there's a law that dictates right and wrong. And then there's an atonement mechanism, uh, which is vicarious atonement through animal sacrifice. And we see this throughout, for instance, the first part of Leviticus. Uh, all these rules about how sin offerings and other offerings are to be made. Well, how would that work? Well, Leviticus 17 and verse 11, in explaining why the people should need blood, God explains how the mechanism works. And he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So even talking about blood is itself a metaphor. Blood stands for the life, because life is in the blood. You know, uh, 
blood provides oxygen throughout the body without which your body could no longer function. And so uh, life is in the blood. And so what's really going on is a life is being given to atone or cover for the life of another. So when an Israelite by faith offers an animal sacrifice to Yahweh for his or her sin, the innocent life of the animal was given to atone for the guilty life of the Israelite. So the innocent life is suffering the penalty. In this sense, justice is satisfied because a life is given for sin, which is a penalty for sin. And the benefit was, I, we can say perhaps vicariously, absorbed by the Israelite. His uh, transgression is, is, is covered, and he is able to stand again and to have life before Yahweh. So that's the idea of why sacrifice works. But as the Hebrew author explains in Hebrews 10 and verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats could not really take away sin. And that's why Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, uh, prophesies that there would be one who would arise in Israel who would suffer for his people in order to secure their atonement. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, will speak of Jesus with the words of this prophecy, to show that Jesus lived without sin and died as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what happens is Jesus gives his innocent life for the guilty lives of all people and for the world. Justice is satisfied because a life is given for sin. And that was why Jesus' sacrifice is able to cover any and every sin from the beginning, and that people by faith could vicariously absorb life in Jesus. He becomes a high priest, in a sense, and blood offered as his own in Hebrews 7 through 9. And this is how uh, Paul will say that Jesus is a sin offering for us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. One sin led to all sins, one act of righteousness could lead to the atonement of all sins in Romans 5 as well. But contrary to many popular opinions, the idea of Jesus as a sacrifice is not the only way that Jesus uh, death is understood. It's also understood in terms of money and debt. In Matthew 18, 21-35, there's a parable that Jesus gives about a master and a servant, and they're talking about forgiveness of sins, but they do so in terms of debt forgiveness. And they use financial terms, a talent and 300 denarii. Uh, he spoke in Matthew 20 28, said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment to purchase somebody else's life. And so he would pay the price. He would absorb the loss. He would experience the suffering so that uh, the debt that humans had accrued through sin could be paid now, the redemption metaphor is absolutely indebted to the sacrifice imagery to understand how uh, that kind of transaction could take place and be reckoned as effective. I mean, how could it be that Jesus' death could pay for bad behavior of other people? Well, it's because the atonement of, in, of giving life for life in Leviticus 17, the idea of that sacrifice. But the redemption metaphor has a very important thing, which is, okay, how do we attain salvation? It's a matter of accounting, ultimately. When we put our 
faith in Jesus and we act accordingly, God is not reckoning our sin against us because he considers that debt as being paid in full by the blood of the Lord Jesus. In Romans 4, 6 through 7, blesses is a man whom the, uh, Yahweh does not reckon his sin to him, based on Psalm 32. And that's a very important concept. A lot of times this gets missed in everything, um, in, in all the arguments that go on about salvation. Uh, that in the end, uh, we're looking at it through these metaphorical prisms, and we can take things a bit too seriously and literally at times. But it is about uh, transactions, it's about accounting. Uh, in the end, when it comes to the actual application to the believer, considering that I've yet to see anybody actually get uh, blood upon them in baptism or in any other way that people have ever imagined you might obtain salvation. And so we need to uh, be careful about how we speak about such things. There's another way that is looked at. Uh, in Revelation 12, for instance, uh, we're given this interesting scene in Revelation 12, 1 through 12, where Satan is attempting to defeat a woman with child. The child is given all authority, while Satan is cast out of heaven and is defeated. And it's consistent with a theme that's seen throughout the New Testament. We can see this in Ephesians 6.12, Colossians 2.15 especially, that through suffering evil thoroughly without responding in kind, Jesus overcame evil and the spiritual forces of darkness that lay behind that evil. And so it's interesting to notice that Jesus doesn't, isn't the scapegoat that gets thrown out into the wilderness. Jesus isn't a normal sin offering. He's a lamb. And not only is he a lamb, he's a lamb at Passover. Right? John one twenty nine, uh, that idea of Jesus as a lamb, and, and he dies during the Passover. And Paul picked that up in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Uh, because Jesus is as the Passover lamb, that in his suffering and death he provided liberation for the people, just as the Passover lamb was a sign of how God was providing deliverance uh, and liberation for his people uh, back in the days of Egypt. Uh, this time, the liberation is from the bondage of sin and death, and the forces empowered by darkness. This way of looking at Jesus' uh, sacrifice and death is called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, the idea that Jesus gained victory over sin and death, and if we suffer as he did, we can obtain victory in him, which also animates Romans 8, 17-24, among other passages. And so I hope that we can see that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is a sacrifice for our sin, and he allowed for our debt to be paid, and in so doing, he overcame the forces of sin and death. So this is what salvation is, and why we need to be saved, and how Jesus provided salvation. But God doesn't force salvation on people. It's because in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love does not insist on its own way. God has offered the invitation, and all who would be saved have to accept it, to be reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. So we do well to ask, how is a person to be rescued or delivered in Jesus? Well, the first thing is somebody has to hear the gospel of Christ in Romans 10, 13-17. A person needs to know what it is they're accepting. And so, the message of Jesus' life and death, resurrection, his ascension and lordship, and the fact he's going to return one day needs to be told to them. Because that's going to provide the basis for everything else. You've got to know who Jesus is, what he's about, to be able to put the, do the next thing, which is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to confess as much, as we see in Romans 10, 9-10, Hebrews 10, 1 and 6. So when you hear the gospel message, you've got to accept it as truth. Now, to accept that message as truth demands the recognition that Yahweh, the Creator God of Israel, has worked powerfully in Jesus, raised Him from the dead, and has given Him all authority in heaven and on earth. And so we need to believe that Jesus is Lord, which means we need to put our trust in Him as Lord and King, that we will do what He says. 
And we can't keep that just to ourselves. We need to declare it orally before others to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Romans 10, 9 through 10, as we see also evidence in 1 Timothy 6, 12, and 13. Beyond that, we need to repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. In English, repentance is involved in sorrowful, uh, being sorrowful for sin. And we are to be sorrowful for our sins. We're to be ashamed of the things we were doing before, in Romans 6.21. But in Greek, repentance is metanoia, which means a complete change of mind for the better. So we need to change our hearts and minds to follow Jesus, to no longer follow the ways we were beforehand that led to futility and darkness. Through repentance, we commit to following the ways of Jesus. In so many ways, repentance is looking forward and is going to govern the life that we live in faith from here on out. And we must also be baptized into Christ in Acts 2.38, Romans 6.3-7, Galatians 3.27, and 1 Peter 3.21. That baptism is immersion in water. In Romans 6.3-7, the metaphor of dying with Christ doesn't make a lot of sense unless you are covered with something. And baptism is the means by which we come into spiritual contact with the blood of Christ. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus dies for the remission of sins. He shed his blood for the remission of sins. In Acts 2, 38, we are baptized for the remission of sins. It's our appeal to faith in God to have the cleansing of Christ reckoned on our behalf through his resurrection in 1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism is the covenant sign of the new covenant between God and man in Jesus. It's also the normative response of faith in the first century of the gospel message. And what all that means is that in Old Testament, there's circumcision, right? You were circumcised. Ah, that was showed you were part of the covenant. In, in the New Covenant, uh, it's not circumcision. It's the fact that you have submitted to baptism, having believed that Jesus is the Christ. And we say it's a normative response of faith. You know, the question is, okay, when somebody in the book of Acts heard that Jesus is the Christ, what did they then do? Well, we see over and over again, Acts 2, Acts 8, uh, multiple times in Acts 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 16, uh, when somebody hears the gospel of Christ, they're baptized. That is their response in faith to hearing the message. And it's almost very difficult to deny, uh, in the face of all the evidence, that that's the case. Even those who would profess that there are other ways that you could somehow obtain salvation have to at least admit that, indeed, in the first century, baptism was the normative response of faith. And in Galatians 3.27, we're told that we put on Christ in baptism. That's not the end, though. That's just the beginning, because we need to follow Jesus as a disciple of his, enduring to the end in Matthew 10, 22, uh, 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Yes, we may receive initial salvation, quote-unquote, by hearing, believing, confessing, repenting, and being baptized. But God's goal in Christ is relational. God's purposes is not to have someone believe they've just fixed their sin problem. They can go back to life as usual or as normal, so to speak. Because anyone who has that mentality has not fully understood the implications of the gospel message. God does not want us to be wallowing in sin, but to become more like His Son, to live righteously, not according to the desires of the flesh, but to be conformed to the image of Jesus, in Romans 8, 29, Galatians 5, 17-24. Can we imagine that we could obtain victory over sin and death in Jesus, but then return to the practices that led us to be defeated and die and think everything's going to go well with us? There's no reason to think that's the way it would work out. And so that is why it is that the one who endures to the end will be saved, in Matthew 10, 22. That we must uh, die uh, to self, live uh, to Christ, to consider ourselves crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20 uh, because he gave himself for us. If we do these things, we will be reconciled to God in Christ. We become one with God and we can share eternity with him. 
And so we hope and that if you all that if you haven't yet obtained salvation in Christ, that you would seriously consider this message. And please reach out to us. We'd love to get in contact with you and help you find people who can help you uh, in your walk with Christ. Or perhaps you have been saved and you really like this message. We encourage you to share it with others. Maybe you'd like to learn more about Jesus or matters of the faith. We encourage you to check us out online at VentureToChrist.org. We're also on social media. Uh, if you'd like to contact me personally, if there's any way we can be of service, please let me know uh, at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.